Okay, let's get started. So as most of you know, this is the fourth week of Advent, and our Advent has gone kind of crazy here. If you have been here, there's been a lot of stuff going on. My husband was in a motorcycle accident, and then his grandmother died, so we've been traveling, and Tyler had to um, preach at a moment's notice, and so it hasn't really gone the way we expected. But here we are, in the fourth week, we've made it. Today, we're talking about love. And so the word Advent, as we've said before over these, this series, means arrival. And so when we think about that, we think about the arrival of Jesus, the arrival of God to earth in the form of a human being at, that we celebrate at Christmas time, the first arrival. And then we think about the arrival of Jesus coming again, the second, when Jesus comes to make everything good again, like it was intended to be in the beginning. And I think we can look around. It's pretty easy to look around and see that everything is not the way it's supposed to be. There's lots of things that we can see that are not right and that are very wrong. And so in this Advent season, yes, we celebrate the birth of Christ, baby Jesus, but we also celebrate the fact that Jesus is coming again to make it all right the way it was intended to be. So as I was thinking about Christmas, I kind of wonder what you guys like to do in the wintertime, because it's cold here in Pennsylvania. In the winter, it's cold. That's not everywhere. That's what I'm told. I don't know. Everywhere I've ever lived, it's been cold at Christmas time. But actually, where we're going in Indiana, it's going to be 60 on Christmas. I'm so excited about that. But so what do you guys like to do in the wintertime? Can you give me some wintertime activities? Just yell them out. Oh, yes. My man. Tyler likes to sing. I don't know. Roast chestnut. Okay. <laughs> what else? Yes. Does anybody like to go ice skating? Snowboarding. Okay, that's similar. I'll use that as my segue. So you want to hear a story about ice skating? <laughs> Thank you, Evan. Um, so... Uh, whenever I was, I think my freshman year in college that summer, I was a camp counselor, and we decided that we were going to take all the kids ice skating. I had never been ice skating before, but I spent a lot of time at Sir Skate in my elementary school years, and I was like a really good skater. Um, and I could even inline skate, and I could like do the thing where like someone's in front of you, and you're behind them, and you're like kind of dancing and skating at the same time. So I was like, ice skating, no big deal. So we're talking about going ice skating. I'm telling everyone how good I'm going to be. And then we get there, actually, to Galactic Ice. It was here in Altoona. Um, and ice skating is very different from roller skating. Um, and I was not very good. And it's really hard to keep your ankles, like, straight. I felt like I kept, like, skating on the sides of my feet. And these little five-year-olds are skating by me, like, ha, ha, laughing at me while I'm on the ice. Um, and eventually, I had to get a chair like, that's what they give you on the ice, a metal chair that you can kind of, like, scoot around. So that was my life. And I thought I had it all together, but I didn't. And I wonder if that's ever your story. Like, if you think, oh, I've never done this before, but surely it can't be that hard. I can do it. And so now I want to kind of switch gears a little bit, and I want you to think about summertime. And imagine that you're sitting on the bank of Canoe Creek 
or whatever your lake is in the summer, and you see a little like boat bobbing up and down in the distance, and you begin to notice that the boat is kind of curved at the front. That's the way canoes are made. They're curved in the front. And the reason they're like that is for the purpose. They are meant to serve a purpose, and the purpose of a canoe is really that it would hold you up, that it would be buoyant, and then that curved part is kind of like to cut through the water so that it can do a good job of moving through the water. And sure, you could make a canoe that was like a box. You could. You could make a boat like that, but it probably wouldn't serve its purpose very well. And so I was thinking about the wood being curved in the front, and I wondered, how do they do that? How do they make the wood kind of curve in like that? So I researched it. Um, and generally, the way they do that is by either steam or boiling water. They like soak the wood so that it will burn or bend. Um, and what they have to do is make the fibers of the wood weak. They have to make them kind of break them down so that they will form to the shape that they're supposed to take so that they'll curve. And it takes time to do that, but the wood needs to be curved so that it can um, do the purpose of creating the canoe. And as I was kind of um, researching this, I found this quote, and it's just on a site that tells you how to bend wood. It's not supposed to be inspirational, but it really struck me. It says, the harder the wood, the more time is needed to fully soak the wood before it can be bent and to prevent it from springing back to its original form. And so the wood has to be really soaked, especially if it's a really hard wood. If it's a really strong wood, it has to be soaked for longer. And especially the stronger woods, what they'll do is soak them for a really long time so that the fibers get broken down. And then they'll put a weight even more on top of that. And as I was thinking about this, I think often we think about God being called the potter and we're clay in the potter's hands. And I don't think we often show up like clay. <laughs> Clay's easily molded, but it's been my experience that a lot of times we show up like wood that doesn't really want to be bent. And so as I was thinking about this, about how the wood has to be broken down, the fibers have to be weakened so that it can be put into its purpose, so that it can really be formed the way it's supposed to be, that really hit me and I thought, man, that really sounds like my walk with Jesus. So many times when I think I'm strong or I got it together, God has to weaken me. God has to kind of break me down a little bit so that I can be formed into the purpose that he's created for me. It's kind of like training for a marathon. Jeff is training for a marathon, right? Yeah. Awesome. And Brittany. She's not here, but she's also. Um, and if you're training for a marathon, it's a lot of work, right? Jeff would say it's probably a lot of work. It's not fun, it's not easy, but you have a goal in mind, right? And so you do the work. And someone like Jeff, who runs anyway, he probably has to do a little less training than someone like me, who, like, I only run if someone's chasing me or if someone is offering me cake across the room. Like, <laughs> so the, the less ready you are, the more time, the more training it takes to reach the goal. And so I think that God is asking us to trust him in that. That sometimes the stuff that feels like it's breaking us down or tearing us apart is 
really meant to make us weak and malleable because we're not clay, especially the really strong ones of us. It takes even more time and even more things in our way so that we can be molded by God who created us and knows our purpose into the purpose that he has for us. And so today we're going to be reading Ezekiel 34, verses 11 through 16. There's Bibles up here if you want one. If you don't have a Bible, you can have that Bible. Okay, and it says, For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed on a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And so I want to give you a little bit of background here about Ezekiel. At this point in Ezekiel, the Israelites are in exile. And exile really just means they're, they're made to leave their home. And we see that. That's like a theme throughout the Bible. The first exile happened when Adam and Eve were put in the Garden of Eden, and God said, your job is to trust me. That's all you have to do is trust me. And he says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you will die. And Adam and Eve decide to trust themselves instead of God. And so they eat of the tree, and everything, not just them, everything begins to die. I think that's where we see. Now we see the evidence of that. Even now we're living in the time where we see things dying. We see decay everywhere we look. And that's why, because we live in this in-between time of the Jesus coming and Jesus coming back to fix it all. So that was the first exile. And now in Ezekiel, the Israelites are in exile again because they chose to trust themselves. They chose to follow other gods. They chose to... Um, just kind of not pay attention to the law that they were given and do what they wanted to do. And so they're exiled. And all of Ezekiel, up until this point, chapter 34, the first 33 chapters are pretty much spent with God telling them how bad this is, what a terrible situation they're in, and what he's going to do, what, all this, what the consequences of their sin is. He spends 33 chapters telling them what situation they are in and what they've done and what they can expect, really. And so Ezekiel is a prophet who would go and tell the people what God says. And then in chapter 34, after 33 chapters of God telling them how angry he is, it kind of turns a bit. This is where it turns. And have you ever experienced or seen a kid 
run into the street, and then their parent kind of grabs them. Have you, maybe you've been that kid, or maybe you've had your kid kind of run into the street. And what happens? Think about that experience if you've ever seen it even. What happens normally is the parent grabs the kid and yells at them, don't run into the street. This is what could have happened to you. They kind of go crazy, fly off the handle, and tell them the consequences of what that could be. And then after they get it all out, there's a moment of softening usually. And they say, I love you. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. It's my job to take care of you. I say that to my kids all the time. It's my job to take care of you. You have to trust me. So this is where that happens in Ezekiel. In chapter 34, God is telling them the consequences. And then it turns and he says, I love you. I'll take care of you. I will give you rest. And then the second thing that I kind of want to bring up is this, this term sheep. And we see this lots of times in the Bible. God, Jesus uses the word sheep. Ezekiel's using it here for what God says that the Israelites are. And the term sheep, I think, has kind of gotten a bad rap nowadays. We don't want to be a sheep. It's kind of derogatory. A sheep is someone who doesn't have their own thoughts or kind of just goes with the crowd, doesn't have any ideas, and we say things like, don't be a sheep, or I'm not going to be a sheep. It's kind of like a buzzword that we say but maybe it's just me, but I find that I'm fairly influenced by the things that are around me. I think that we're kind of sheepy, to be honest. Like if I look around and think about myself, it matters who I'm with. It matters what I look at, what media I take in. I used to be someone who would say that you can listen to any kind of music mostly because I didn't like Christian music, and I wanted to listen to secular music, and I would say, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect me, it doesn't matter, but it does affect me. And as I've grown up, I recognize I love Zumba, I love to dance, but if I listen to too much Pitbull, it's gonna be real bad for me, okay? We have to really pay attention to what we're taking in, and God knows that. So he calls us sheep because we're sheepy, and he knows it. Notice the dependence on him in this Ezekiel chapter. He says, I will pasture my sheep. I will show them where to lay down. I will give them rest. Not I'll tell them to go lay down. He says, I'll put them where they need to be in the environment that they need to be in. I'll focus them on what they need to focus on. I will do it, not tell them to do it. Often we think we're left to our own devices, but we're not. We're made to be dependent. God created us to be dependent beings. And we can choose. He also created us to be beings with free will. So we can choose what we're going to be dependent on, but in our design, we're dependent. So we can be dependent on ourselves and our own understanding because we have free will. Or we can be codependent with someone else. We can be dependent on substances. But the original design was that we would be dependent on him. And so as we do that, we can kind of combat our sheepiness a little bit because God will put us where we need to be. God will show us what we need to focus on. But he made us. It's in our design to be dependent Verse 16 says, 
I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. So at the beginning it says, God will seek and find the lost. He'll strengthen the weak and bind up the injured. And that sounds like love to us. This fourth week of Advent, we're talking about love. I think all of us would say, yeah, bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. That's love. But then he goes on to say, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. And destruction doesn't really sound like love to us. But friends, let me tell you, if there's anything inside of me that thinks I have it made or that I can figure it out or that I can depend on myself, I pray that God would destroy it because it leads to death, just like he said it would. And so the ability of God to break us down and put us in that state is love because he knows, he created us, he knows that we're going to be dependent on something. And often we need consequences to turn. I know my kids need consequences for their actions to learn how to behave in a way that's going to be good for them. I think that if we are people who think that we have to figure out or understand what God's doing, we're getting it backwards. He is the creator, and we are the created. So it really doesn't make sense when you think about it that way, that we, the created, would understand that which made us. Who would want to follow a God like that, that can be fit into our own little brains? I had a conversation with someone the other day, earlier this week, um, about a situation, and she said, you know, I know if it doesn't work out the way I want it to, I'm going to be mad at God. I think we kind of get it backwards. We have to start with the truth. God loves me. God has a plan. God is good. And then we add our feelings. Instead of starting with our feelings and then wondering if God is good. Wondering if God has a plan. Now, I'm not denying the fact that really bad things happen to good people. Really bad things have happened to some of you people. Really bad things have happened to people that you love. And we need to bring all of that to God. I am a full advocate of lamenting to God. Because if we hide it, we're not really hiding it. We're just stuffing it. So it's okay for us to bring all of our feelings to God. We should, but we need to start in the right place. I'm saying that the place to start is to say, God, I trust you, but this doesn't make sense. Instead of saying, this doesn't make sense, so God, I don't trust you. When we get those, it's very simple, but when we get those things backwards, it's the difference between assurance or peace and complete and total despair and darkness. <clears throat> we have to start with the truth and then add our feelings. But it's a process. And I think we all like to keep ourselves safe. That's why we do that. We try to understand the world before we interact with it. When my son Eli was six months old, I found out that I was pregnant again. That was not intentional. <laughs> um, 
And so Derek and I, we were excited because we were crazy. And um, we would talk about, I, God does this thing with me where I kind of know my kids before they come. Like I knew that Eli was a boy and I knew that his name was Eli. Like I felt he, like he was already named before he was given to me. Um, and so we would talk about, I knew that it was a boy um, and his name was supposed to be Judah. So we would talk about Eli and Judah playing and how much fun it would be for Eli to have a brother. Um, and then something else that we do whenever I'm pregnant, which hopefully won't happen again, um, is that we pray every day for whatever we hear God saying. It's interesting to see the, the personalities of my kids now because that's kind of what we prayed. Um, certainly Eden, we prayed that she would be like spunky and full of life, and she is. Um, and so that's kind of cool. But so we would pray every day. And then, I'm sorry, I'm in a tissue. Women's clothing is not made for these things. Um, anyway, so it was a, a shock to me whenever I went to my 17-week appointment and the doctor couldn't find a heartbeat. Um, and that was crazy. And I was angry and I didn't understand. Why would God, we weren't trying to get pregnant. Why would God give me this baby and then take it away? Didn't make any sense to me. And I could remember going to church. Derek was leading worship. This was a church that he was interning at in Ohio. I can remember the week after my son was evacuated from my body, standing in worship with Derek leading um, and just not wanting to be there. And people looking, you know how people look at you. They mean well, but they just look at you with this like pity and it's terrible. And so I remember being there and just kind of standing in worship and listening and just kind of lamenting and saying like, God, I don't even want to be here. I don't even think you're good. I'm not sure if you're even real. Like, what is the point? What is the point? And then something kind of came over me and I chose to believe that God was good because I couldn't live if he wasn't. And so I just threw my hands up in the air and worshiped like I had never done before. And so I was singing these praises and telling God how good he was, even though I didn't feel like that. But I knew it. In my spirit, as I praised him, as I worshiped him, I knew that he was good. And it didn't make sense to me, and I didn't understand it, and I didn't feel it. But that didn't make it not so. And so something changed in me that day. From that day, I know that God is good. I don't understand what he does sometimes, and I don't understand why bad things happen. But I know that God is good. And I know that I'll see my son again, or see him for the first time. Um, God has brought so much healing through that. And so now I can see that there's some things that God was working in me, and I don't think that God decided to take my son. I don't believe that that's how it works. I believe that we live in a really broken world and bad things happen. But he walked me through it and he bought beautiful things that I probably couldn't have learned any other way. He's let me sit beside other people who have lost babies in a way that you really can't unless you've lost one. And I'm thankful for that. I lost my place. <laughs> 
So worship is a way that we can turn ourselves toward God. Satan would tell you that it's hypocritical to worship if you don't feel it. I think we've probably all heard that lie. You don't feel it, sit down. You can't sing it if you don't feel it because he knows how dangerous it is. He knows that if you choose to sing the words, that something happens, and I can't really even tell you what that is. But God will meet you in those moments and gift you with faith. It doesn't always happen instantaneously, but as we enter into worship, God changes us. And so we can't make our own faith, but we can put ourselves in places, environments where faith can grow. That's a choice. Another way is um, to combat this thinking that we know it all or thinking that we need to listen to our feelings is by being in community. We need to be around other people. We need to be in the environments where people will say, "Mm -hmm, I get it that you don't understand or that you're wondering if God's good, but I will choose to believe it for you and I will tell you the truth. Not in a trite way, not in a cute way with a bow, but in a way that I can stand beside you and listen to you and I will pray for you and I will encourage you. Community is one of the best ways to build yourself up, to be strong and to be in God's presence. If you're not in a small group, you should be. There are lots of options for small groups. We have some papers out on the information table if you'd like to be involved in one. Sunday is great. Sunday is not the end. You need people who can walk out life with you. And I would love to walk out life with every one of you, but I just physically can't. So you should be in a small group. Another really good way um, to put yourself in an environment where faith can be cultivated is reflection. I think in America, it's really hard for us to believe that the things that we think we earned or the things that we buy or the things that we get are not really ours. But the fact of the matter is, we are all just a few life events away from losing everything. So a really good way to combat thinking that we have it all or that God doesn't love us or God doesn't get us is to reflect on the things that we have and all the things that God affords us because every good gift does come from the Father. Just like that song we sang earlier, that's so true. Every good gift comes from him, not from our hard work, not from our money, not from our circumstance in life, from God. And lots of people don't have the things that you have, don't have the good gifts that you have. Be it things, be it family, be it love around you, be it spiritual gifting, like Steph, she's a wooer. I don't know if you know what woo is. Woo is when someone walks into a room and everyone's like, who is that girl? That's Steph. I don't have that. (laughs) I want it, but I don't have it. We all have things that God has gifted us with. And reflection is a really great way to get in touch with the goodness of God. And lastly, so much of my faith has really been solidified as I choose to act as though I believe that it's true. 
If I can't make my feelings feel it, I can make my feet do it. I can read in the word what the truth is, and I can make myself do that thing or act as though I believe that thing to be true. And honestly, as I do that, as I step on those things, I find that they hold up under me and they begin to strengthen me. I think we depend way too much on our feelings. Feelings lie to us a lot of the time. Feelings are not bad or good, but sometimes we can't trust them. We need to trust the truth that we can read in Scripture. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus heals a boy of an evil spirit, and the boy's father says, I believe, help my unbelief. And I think that's the most authentic way to live as a follower of Jesus. Yes, God, you're good. Help me to believe that you're good. Yes, God, I trust you. Help me to trust you. It's always this, we shouldn't live without some doubt because that makes us kind of wrestle with it. But we choose to put ourselves in the places where faith can be built up, where we can be made strong. I want to kind of finish with a quote from the Jesus Storybook Bible. I don't know if you know that one, but it's great. Even if you're an adult and don't have any kids, you should get it because it's great. Um, And so it's kind of a paraphrase. It's a kid's Bible. And there's this quote that always makes me cry every time I read it to my kids. Um, And it's what God says to Adam and Eve after they find out that they're going to have to leave the garden, after they've sinned and let death in. And he says, before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And that's our promise to us. God's coming back. Jesus is coming back to make everything the way it was supposed to be again so that our dependence is solely on him so that our trust can be solely in him. He knows how we were designed. And he allows things that we don't understand. But he promises that he will take care of us, that he will put us in places where we should be, and that we can trust in him, that he will come back and restore it all.